0: This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for April 27, 2022. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal. I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Today, we're also joined by Jean Morazzo. Jean has led important studies in sexually transmitted infections and is an expert on efforts to prevent HIV transmission. She's currently studying interventions in COVID-19, and she's been an important voice in helping to bring information on the disease to the wider community. She is a professor at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, where she also serves as director of the Division of Infectious Diseases and the executive vice chair of the Department of Medicine. She's a fellow and also the treasurer of the Infectious Disease Society of America. I'd like to talk about the current management of people who present after exposure to or infection with SARS-CoV-2. But before we get to that, it's important to point out that the best way to avoid serious illness is to get vaccinated. Here in Boston, We're in an area with relatively high uptake of the vaccines, but Alabama has one of the lowest rates of vaccination in the country. Gene, how do you think we can best help patients to be comfortable with vaccination?
1: Yes, Steve, it's an excellent question and one that's kept many of us up at night throughout this whole pandemic during the time that vaccines have been available. You know, first, I think it's important to try to understand the reasons behind the low uptake of vaccination and to recognize that it's not as simple as black and white or as some people like to paint it, red and blue, right? It's not just a political divide. It's not just mistrust of the federal government and don't tell us what to do. There's also a very long legacy of mistrust of healthcare, particularly in our very poor rural areas That has been informed by things like the Tuskegee experiments. And Tuskegee, in case some younger listeners don't know, involved a trial where Black men were observed for neurosyphilis and not treated, um, went on for many years. People remember that here. And there is a lot of mistrust. On top of that, our access to primary care, let alone medical specialties, subspecialties, is really poor. So getting people into a situation where they can safely and with trust get the information they need is really a lot more complicated. So there's a lot to talk about there that doesn't have to do with treatment of COVID, but really, really speaks to our, I think, inability to communicate to our most vulnerable populations about complex medical issues.
2: Gene, I wonder, medical mistrust was always there, but has COVID made it worse because it's amplified the message?
1: COVID has definitely magnified the levels of medical mistrust in a state like ours on several levels. For one thing, the overt politicization of the messaging around COVID that began very early right with what caused this, was it a lab outbreak, where did the virus come from, progressing to the use of masks, and then on to vaccination, it just has escalated, I think, with every level of intervention that we've had. So people have, I think, started out with mistrust. And then as the stakes got higher, you know, the voices just got more shrill. And so the political side, I think, has just really, really taken off. I don't think in terms of the mistrust for vulnerable populations, that has gotten worse. If anything, I think we've done better. I often refer to the New Yorker article that covered the two women in rural Alabama who managed to get most of their citizens vaccinated just by talking to people and getting them into a place where they could actually trust. So it's really about communication. One thing I've learned, having spent a ton of time with local media, is that if you don't communicate at the local level, you are really not communicating. People don't wanna hear from Dr. Fauci here. I'm sorry to say that, and I'm not sure it's okay to say that here, but people get very tired of hearing from what they consider distant authorities, and they really, really wanna hear from their local folks.
3: So Jean, two questions, but just first, given that politics and medical health have become so intertwined in our public health response, in general, and to vaccines, as we're specifically discussing, how do we depoliticize it? How do we disconnect what to me seems like a very unhealthy interaction?
1: So, we've tried a few things. One is emphasizing that science crosses the aisle, the virus crosses the aisle, and also talking to anyone who wants to talk to me, right, to us. So we have done communication with news outlets and reporters, for example, who, depending on your political bent, may not be somebody that you tune into every day, and that's really okay. The message is that there is really nothing political about the stupid virus, right? The virus is going to do what it's going to do, and It's going to affect everybody. And I think that emphasizing that, trying to not vilify people who don't understand or don't accept your recommendations immediately, continuing to work with them, really just taking the heat down many, many degrees is what you need to do. And I think, you know, working together with people of many different political bents has taught me quite a lot about the fact that you just can't communicate enough and you can't communicate respectfully enough. I feel like that's one. One of the things that the pandemic has really exacerbated, and that's just the level of really disrespect and ridicule. I mean, you can see it on Twitter, right? People have actually commented on some interpretations that I've made about things and said, well, that's a very poor take. I'm like, well, this is my take on the evidence. You know, what do you want me to tell you? So I think there's just a, a permissive environment for being very critical. And it's been very hard because, as you know, we've been in real time, 24 hours a day interpreting data. I mean, really early on, especially it was like drinking from a firehouse, right? So lots of opportunities to criticize us for our interpretation, but really just trying to take a deep breath and recognize that everybody was working very hard to try to keep themselves safe and their people safe and trying to keep that dialogue going. So that's what we've really been trying to do.
3: And I think, Gene, that plays into how we communicate with each other and with our communities. And given the overwhelming and easy access to information, good, bad, right, wrong, inflammatory or not, how do we, the medical community, better communicate to each other? How do we as medical journals better communicate to increase the quality of the information people are trusting, talking about, reacting to?
1: It is such a hard line to walk, to be a responsible scientific advocate and a rigorous interpreter of data. And I think that, you know, as someone who's done infectious diseases my whole life, really gone into it largely because of HIV medicine, we've always had to walk that line. The pandemic, I think, of course, like everything else it did, injected a huge dose of megasteroids right into that challenge. So I guess I look at it as, you know, you're always going to have to look at the data with a cold eye, really try hard to decipher what is hype, what is overstatement, which there was a lot of, of course, during the pandemic, because there were a lot of people who were trying to make their media reputation, primarily, I think, during the pandemic. And then take a step back and say, how is this really going to help my patient, my community, my faculty, my people, my institution? You know, how can I apply this? And then how can I advocate for it in a way that is scientifically responsible and also congruent with my principles. I think ultimately, you know, it really comes back to your scientific integrity, right? Because if you don't feel comfortable putting the data out there and saying, I think we should change our guidelines based on this study because it was done well and it's going to make a difference." I mean, I think that's the line you have to walk, but it has been very hard. I can only imagine what you've seen at the journal. you probably had submissions for every single thing under the sun. So, you know, at least if I read it in the journal, I know that it's been vetted, but all the preprint stuff that's come out with people demanding change based on preprint, that's been the hard part because I feel like we haven't had the benefit of really intense peer review and scrutiny to help us decide In many cases, what was the right thing to do really fast, right? Because the time pressure was quite intense.
3: And I think, Gene, that's been a real struggle for us as a journal, but also as researchers and as care providers. How do we deal with rapid, imperfect information available today versus properly completed studies and vetted information next month when everybody is trying to make the best decisions today to keep themselves and their families safe?
1: Totally. And a great example is oral Paxlovid, right? So Paxlovid right now technically is only for people at increased risk, right? If one of my faculty members has COVID, as many have recently, and they want to get Paxlovid, well, like, of course, I think it makes perfect sense to treat, you know, it's like Tamiflu or Oseltamivir. Why wouldn't you use it if you were an otherwise healthy 48-year-old person? So, you know, you're caught between what the data are as they evolve in real time versus what you know theoretically makes perfect sense and your responsibility to, you know, the guidelines. Also to what other people have access to, because we have, of course, access to things that other people don't.
0: Expanding on what you're saying, A number of agents have been authorized by the FDA for either prevention or treatment of COVID, but it's been a bit difficult to keep up with them. Why is that?
1: So, Steve, I think it's been difficult to keep up because, as I said, you know, we're not in a usual time situation where you can rely on the data coming out in peer-reviewed articles that classically publish big clinical trials, whether it's the New England Journal or JAMA or Lancet. This is a situation where often you're dealing with news by press release. That's been really, really frustrating. I think It's difficult enough when the preprint is out and you you download it and then you read it and you at least can make an assessment of the scientific quality of the data. But we have seen lots of press releases that have given us outcomes, clinical outcomes, usually with just percentages, not even sometimes with statistical comparisons, p-values, confidence intervals, forget it. So I think that's been very tough. That makes the news and then informed people who are reading about it start asking us about these things. They expect us to have access about these things. They want to know when we're going to get it. So I would say that's taken up a lot of time in our efforts to manage the pandemic.
2: And I'd add that, you know, things are changing relatively rapidly as well. Of course, a lot of new agents are still new. And you mentioned Paxlovid earlier. That's certainly a new agent. And the indications for that are changing. They've already changed as the drug has become more available. In addition, the monoclonal antibodies that people are using are changing in that they no longer work against some of the variants. Because they're so sequence-specific, drugs that we used to use are no longer useful. And all of that's happening in the context of the FDA or the CDC changing the recommendations. And since all of these drugs are still not approved, but authorized, they have this unusual status where physicians are really required to use them under the terms of the emergency use authorization. They can't use them off-label like they would ordinarily. So there's a lot to follow here, apart from the fact that the research is coming out more slowly than one might want.
1: Absolutely. And I would add too... That for the monoclonals, these are not things you can prescribe in your office, right? Generally, you've got to have an infusion center or you've got to have a place for giving the four subcutaneous injections if you're thinking about the sub Q action for CAS IMD. So there are plenty of barriers to getting these things out there.
3: But Eric and Gene, I think it's quite complicated. You know, as you suggested, Gene, the Communicating science by press release, which is very frustrating because there are a lot of forces that go into a press release. But as we've witnessed in the last year, one, COVID, I think the latest CDC data suggests was the third leading cause of death last year in this country. So the therapeutic urgency was palpable to all of us caring for patients. Number two, novel study designs to rapidly assess new agents, compounds, pathways often stopped early by their safety monitoring boards, suggesting convincing evidence of efficacy, the data are not yet collected, verified, audited, analyzed, submitted, peer reviewed and published, which takes time and even doing that quickly is weeks and weeks. So at least for me, it's been a real challenge and what do we mean by scientific reporting in this type of context of therapeutic urgency and novel agents and pathways that may be assessed for the first time. How do we communicate that? How do we think about what we consider evidence and the evolution of evidence as it gets reported in real time as each step in the process is observed?
2: You know, Lindsay, it's a really good point. And I guess my feeling is that we make medical decisions all the time based on varying qualities of information. The unusual thing here is that it's under a magnifying glass in a way that it ordinarily isn't. After all, you're absolutely right. Things are being implemented earlier than we would ordinarily do it. We're not able to do the sorts of large phase three studies for some of the things that we're doing that we'd want to. And we are kind of shut out from some of the things that we'd love to have. For example, we'll never be able to test new vaccines in naive patients anymore because they've either been vaccinated or infected. So I think we're in an unusual position with this epidemic, although I'm not sure that it's all that different from other
3: important questions where we're working on incomplete information. But I think it gets to the issue of how we communicate. I'm not sure I'm criticizing the science. In fact, the absolute opposite. I think the community has brought incredible rigor and novel approaches to identifying what works. But the level of the data and evidence is looked at at a very early stage, not in its full completeness years later. And that has created a challenge for the agency utilizing the emergency use authorization frame, a challenge for how information is communicated and for the guideline committees and how they determine what to recommend. I don't think it's bad. I think it's been quite good. I think the challenge is how we communicate it because it means... What we look at today, we may have a different view next week when the data are more complete. And that looks confusing to the general community and to many of our colleagues. And it's a communication challenge, I think, in part.
1: I would say two things to that. One is that in some ways this has exposed the underbelly of how we work as physicians and scientists, we always disagree. We've always disagreed, right? We hash things out, whether it's over the bedside or whether it's in editorials or whether it's at protocol team meetings or whether it's at DSMBs, right? There's always disagreement. What I think this has done, as Eric has said, is not only put a magnifying glass on it, but compressed it incredibly short timeframe. So people are seeing all the sausage making, you know, they're seeing the sausage getting made. Whereas before it was a little bit behind closed doors and it was a, you know, I mean, there were some brawls, but nobody was out there on Twitter sort of talking about how these things were conducted. So I think the openness and transparency and pace are what are different. Has that been challenging? Absolutely. But the second thing I was gonna say is I think it's a really good thing because frankly, clinical trials and clinical trial conduct have been conducted at a way too leisurely and over-regulated pace for years, right? I mean, you've done clinical trials, you know. It's like a gentleman's game at times. By the time you get the approvals that you need, by the time you get this, it's like there is no apparent urgency. This lit a fire under the conduct of clinical trials in a way that I think the FDA certainly rose to the occasion And again, yes, there's risk with that, because there's always risk with that lightning speed. But I'm really hopeful that this will help us realize that we can get important clinical trials and this kind of work done, not only with a pandemic sort of historical pathogen, but with other things that threaten people's lives every day
3: couldn't agree with you more. I think that the clinical trials process, many of us who are involved in it do get frustrated with how long it takes. And the COVID exceptionalism that allowed things to move quickly should not be looked at as exceptional, but should be a path for us to say, how do we do clinical trials for all of the diseases that our patients suffer from more quickly and looked at more as an opportunity to improve what we do, rather than look at it as a footnote of an unusual year with an unusual problem.
0: So getting back to management, and with the caveat that, as you say, things are changing all the time, what would you do today for a very high-risk patient, such as an organ transplant recipient on immunosuppression, who has a known exposure to COVID-19?
1: So these are really challenging patients and they're the ones who, despite being vaccinated, which is a really challenging issue, just have not done very well. The efficacy of vaccination we know in these patients is just not as good as it is for people who have a completely intact immune system. So that's been really very challenging. And unfortunately, right now there's no way to prevent it other than vaccination. So I think the question is really how active can you intervene? And the options are really limited, right? You've really just got to sort of tell people to be very careful, monitor themselves very carefully. There's really no approved or effective treatment for prevention in this setting after exposure. So it's really a very challenging situation.
3: Completely agree, Gene. These are some of our most difficult situations because these patients are so vulnerable with a weakened immune system and the risk of progression. And without active agents in the post exposure setting being authorized, we don't have an active treatment that we can give. However, what I think is critically important, given how rapidly BA2 and other variants are spreading, is early diagnosis. And so we need to be aggressive in our ability to diagnose patients early. So the discussion about early treatment can occur. Hopefully, agents will get indications for post-exposure prophylaxis, but as you pointed out, sadly, we're not
0: there today. So this is a patient at very high risk of developing severe disease, but the definition of risk is broad. If you include all the risk factors for severity described by the CDC, it likely represents half or more of the U.S. population. So I want to ask you how you would manage the case of this patient if he or she were to test positive for COVID-19, but then also ask who should be treated in general and how does vaccination status play into that calculus?
1: So for this patient, if it was a severely immunocompromised patient, you do have a few options, even as an outpatient. Unfortunately, as Lindsay mentioned, the use of the monoclonal antibodies is you know, often off the table, given the shifting variants, although sometimes they can come back, right? There have been situations where we pulled them back after they've been not recommended because of the variant resistance. But in this case, you've got a few options. You do have remdesivir, which can be given intravenously as an outpatient. Again, you have to have the facilities to do that. It's three doses and you need transportation, you need infusion situation, all of that kind of thing. You need to be able to treat on the weekends. These are practicalities that people don't really think about when they just sort of say you can use it which is a reason that Paxlovid, which is the oral agent, becomes quite a lot more attractive. Remember that you've got to give that within five days of symptoms. You have the potential for drug interactions. And in immunocompromised people who are often on transplant medications, and immunosuppressants, that can be really very challenging. So you may need to actually stop or just pause their medications for a few days, particularly tacrolimus, which is one of the things that we worry about The other thing with oral treatment is molnipiravir, which really we have hardly used very much. And I'd love to hear Lindsay and Eric's thoughts about that. I think Paxlovid really sort of eclipsed that given the superior efficacy. The challenge with Paxlovid really is the protease inhibitor issue and this question of, I think, resistance, which we should talk about because there are some papers, I understand, that are going to come out hopefully in the next week to talk about people who've been treated with Paxlovid and then have recurrent symptoms, remain antigen- Positive, and it will be really important to try to understand those. So back to this patient, I think you could use remdesivir, you could use Paxlovid with attention to the drug interactions. Most people, if you're facing COVID in this situation, would try to reduce the general immunosuppression as briefly as you you know feel comfortable with. But that is going to be an issue. And then molnupiravir, really a second line agent. Although I have seen people who have suggested. Combining Paxlovid and Molnapiravir. No data for that, totally anecdotal. Again, facing those possibilities where we really don't have any data, but people are talking about what their best approach would be.
2: Ian, it's so interesting that you used the word anecdotal a few times because there are a lot of anecdotes out there, which are important because they're helping us figure out what we should do. At the same time, there are no clear data. Certainly, many stories and many people who are treating patients right now have encountered the patients who had either delayed symptoms or turned antigen positive or PCR repositive after treatment with Paxlovid, which suggests that there was some at least delay in perhaps the immune response or perhaps, as you're suggesting, viral resistance. It raises the question of who should be treated again because these are good agents. Paxlovid certainly is highly effective. Remdesivir with all of the problems that you brought up is highly effective in keeping people out of the hospital. At the same time, the more widely these drugs are used, the more likely we are to see broader resistance. The resistance of monoclonals arose because of immunity in the population, which was induced by vaccination or by infection, which is selecting for the variant spike proteins that we're seeing. We haven't seen that with the small molecules, but we haven't seen it simply because they haven't been used and that sort of evolutionary pressure hasn't been out there. But I wonder if we should be considering how we should be using these drugs as good stewards to prevent drug resistance. You brought up one possibility, which is combining agents. Although to my knowledge, there aren't much data out there.
1: So getting back to Steve's question and your comments, Eric, I think it's a question that we have kind of dodged, namely who to treat, right? We were so focused on keeping people out of the hospital, you know, maintaining bed availability, just reducing the severe morbidity and mortality that we saw early on, that of course we were thrilled to have an oral option. I think now the question is, what are you willing to tolerate if you get COVID? First of all, What are you willing to tolerate and is a brief course of oral therapy going to modify that course? So the things that I worry about with people who, even who are immunized, who get COVID are fatigue there is significant fatigue that some people get that really prevents them from getting back to work. There's also loss of taste and loss of smell, which I think can happen even if you've been vaccinated. And some people have had that now for a long time. So there's this long COVID kind of spectrum that I think we are just beginning to understand. Long COVID can be just that three-month period when you're really dysfunctional. I mean, you may not cognitively and physically be feeling like you want to get back. And then there's, of course, the long COVID that we're just learning about. So will a short course of a small molecule antiviral really impact the likelihood that these things are going to happen less in people who are less at risk, quote unquote, for severe COVID? That is something that we absolutely have to figure out. And getting back to Lindsay's comment, how do we design those prospective trials now? They're going to need to be observational trials. They're not going to be randomized control trials unless you start looking at longer courses or combination therapy. I don't think we're having those discussions in a way that is going to really get us the answers we need in the real time we need as variants are evolving on a daily basis. So it's an incredibly rich discussion. And I feel like the guidelines panels need to start thinking less about reacting to the emergence of new agents and the database to approve them or recommend them and more about How can we be nimble to study these kinds of questions in a population that's facing another winter very soon and waning immunity right, in people who've been vaccinated? So lots of things to think about that I just don't hear a lot of people talking about.
3: Eugene, just thinking about how we use science to guide our treatment, I did want to make sure we commented on the monoclonals and where they fit into treatment, because I think that does speak a little bit to the science and how we apply it to practice with imperfect clinical data. And Eric, as you point out, the evolutionary pressure on the spike protein has led to its evasion of many of the monoclonals over the last year. And recently, bebtilovimab was emergency use authorized based upon very strong preclinical data, clinical data demonstrating safety and activity but not on-point data with the circulating variants where they're now authorized. And it is an option that our community is thinking about using and using, but it's based upon in large part an integration of data that the community has debated a bit, the agency has debated a bit and has allowed its authorization. So I think that's another agent that we need to be aware of that can be used in early treatment and how we are using, Gene, as you discussed, the scientific process to make inference about where things fit in and are likely to be active.
1: Thanks for bringing up, Bebtilovamat. I think the FDA EUA for that agent, I don't know that it is historic, but I can't remember or recall many situations where the FDA would have issued an EUA on the basis of this evidence base. And I think, again, it gets back to the urgency, but it does make me worry. I have, again, speaking anecdotally, heard a little bit more about more vigorous reactions to Um, Probably the hardest part about these antibodies is pronouncing them all um so i think that again in the absence of more extended safety data more robust safety data these are things we're going to have to monitor very carefully and look for but again it speaks to the rapid emergence of the variants and our desperate need to have something to use especially in the face of what we think may be new waves um, I mean, one other issue is for hospitalized patients using monoclonal antibodies, I think is a really tough decision, right? Because they're generally either not authorized or they're being reserved largely for outpatients. So I don't know if we really want to get into that, but I do think it's a challenging issue. Hopefully we won't see remdesivir resistance. I don't know that that's in the cards based on the mechanism, but it is something that I worry about because remdesivir is really our only option for severely ill patients who come into the hospital. I worry about that, especially for our immunocompromised folks. One thing we didn't mention when we were talking about that group is that the threshold for hospitalization in that group should be very low. When we were struggling with a lack of hospital beds, we were requiring that people had an oxygen saturation (laughs) below 88% at one point. So, you know, that's not a criteria I would put on any of our organ transplant or immunocompromised people. So early and admission, low threshold for admission is really important in those folks.
0: So the therapies that you've been discussing seem to be low-risk interventions, particularly since they're used for such short periods of time. But as you say, there is concern about the development of resistance. So how does that play into your decision to use these therapies when and how?
1: So I think that it gets back to this question of what are you trying to accomplish by treating somebody with COVID? If you think they are a young, healthy person, 22-year-old, you know, classic, went to the beach, got COVID with all of their friends, and they're going to do fine. They may not need five days of Paxlovid. Can you predict whether they're going to have a long COVID or whether they're going to have fatigue? Or we've seen several young athletes who could not get back to the exertional capacity they had prior to COVID. Even in the absence of obvious radiologic or pulmonary function abnormalities, there's just something going on there that we don't understand. But in general, I think it has to do with the individual patient and your calculus about what you're trying to do. Those folks are generally not going to get hospitalized. I mean, they're going to do well. I think the tricky part is when you get to people who are on that border. So you start to get above 60. You start to get people who have one or more comorbidities. Maybe they're not terrible comorbidities. Maybe it's glucose intolerance. Maybe it's mild hypertension. So those things all have to stack up, I think, before you feel comfortable prescribing medication. Again, because the medications, especially Paxlovid, are largely low risk, I think the threshold should be low. challenge is going to be this concept of stewardship. And are we going to need to restrict it because we're going to see emerging resistance? So there's just too many questions, I think, right now. And it's one reason we need to have really active surveillance for these kind of situations to help us, I think, inform our choices a little bit better.
2: I'd like to go back to something you said earlier, Gene, about HIV. And one of the comparisons with HIV is that antivirals work well in combination. We tend to think of that in chronic diseases like HIV, where it's not going to go away and the rates of resistance, therefore, are going to be very high for single agent or even dual agent therapy. But here we're seeing a lot of viral replication across a population. And so in total, the viral population is large. And therefore, we expect to see resistance. And although an individual may not benefit from that combination, from a public health standpoint, combination therapy might decrease the rate of resistance arising across everybody. And so maybe there's a little altruism there, but it is an opportunity for combinations. And we hope that these agents that we're using right now are sort of first generation. After all, most of our drugs don't require boosting as Paxlovid does. Most new peptidic agents of that sort are designed so that they have a reasonable half-life all by themselves. And malnipiravir is a very early iteration of a broad spectrum antiviral. So I hope we're going to do better. And I hope we're going to think about those clinical trials of the kind that you suggested of combining agents with different mechanisms of action.
1: I think that's a fantastic perspective. I think that the concept of using combination therapy to ward off resistance, you know, HIV was such a, um, as a, I mean, a huge numbers of people with HIV, but we had some time and could focus, right, on that population. This is like facing a forest fire, right, and just trying to figure out how we're going to aim these new drugs as the conflagration spreads. And I think balancing the public health benefit with the individual cost and the cost to society, right, the economic cost, is going to require a pretty sophisticated calculus and a lot more data on the pace of resistance, emergence. I mean, it's just, when you look at the modeling, I mean, the other thing I was going to mention is just how epidemic or pandemic modeling has become almost a household word during this pandemic. I don't think modelers have ever been such rock stars as they have during this pandemic, for better or for worse. So I think this is where once you do get much better data on the evolution of resistance, you can start plugging some of those things into these models and look at the application of various interventions. I haven't seen modeling catch up yet to that sort of question. And I think that's going to be the next really important contribution I hope that those teams make, because I do think that it is going to help us a lot to figure out what to do next with these drugs.
0: Thank you, Gene, for joining us today. And as always, thank you, Eric. And thank you, Lindsay.